0: Great to have a welcome and then sort of having welcome me, half the congregation walk out. You know, it's sort of good job I'm secure, isn't it? Good to be with you this morning. Um, this morning's sermon is going to be shared between me and Mark here on the front row. Mark Boniatowski, who is one of our students in Oxford, but who's also in our preaching training course. Uh, So he's going to be doing part of the message this morning. So when we get to his bit especially, I want lots of big smiles, lots of encouragements, lots of nods and lots of yes marks when we come to it. So let's make sure this is working. Um, Coming this morning in a series on OCC's values to Jesus the servant. And so we're looking this morning at the theme of servanthood. Now, servanthood is not a word that we hear an awful lot of these days, uh, is it? You know, you won't find it on someone's CV or uh, some shop's Christmas advertising campaign uh, or on some party political slogan, vote for us. You know, servanthood is what it's all about. It's not a particularly common word. So um, I thought I'd do a Google search on it this week. So I typed servanthood, into Google. And actually, I was quite surprised because I found 433,000 sites, which shocked me. I didn't expect anywhere near that number of sites on servanthood, 433,000. So I thought, I wonder how that compares with other things. So I then typed in greatness. And I got forty-one million two hundred thousand sites, a hundred times more sites about greatness and how to be great than about servanthood. And I suppose that reflects our culture and our world, people far more interested in how to be great, how to influence, than how to serve. And then I thought, and how is it that people measure greatness these days? Well, it's, it's things like this how many followers you have. So here's a well-known guy who's known as a bit of a tweeter, Stephen Fry. On Wednesday, Stephen Fry had 11,682,047 followers. Puts you in perspective if you've got 23, doesn't it? Um, Sadly, he's still only number 114th in the world ranking. Uh, number one is Katy Perry, 78,087,722. And sorry for this, Justin Bieber, number two, with 70,208,899. Oh and maybe you're not into uh, Twitter and, you know, how great you are through people liking your comments. Maybe you're more into Facebook. Uh, a lot of people whose lives are governed by how many thumbs up they get for their postings. And if it's not that, some of the other things that people use to measure greatness today, well, the degree they get, uh, the job they hold, the money they earn, the car they drive, the holidays they take, uh, the power they wield, or the fame they have. There's Daniel Ratcliffe getting his star on the Hollywood Boulevard uh, of Fame uh, last week. Now, of course, it's very easy for us to sit here this morning and think, yeah, but that's not me. I mean, I I don't go for things like that. The trouble is, this is the atmosphere we breathe all the time. This is the world that we live in. This is the stuff, the smog all around us. So it'd be really surprising if some of this sometimes didn't get into our own hearts, which takes us back to servanthood. Because servanthood, the Bible tells us, is highly esteemed by God. And you know what? We all agree, don't we? Yes. Until it comes to us to do it. In my story that I told about my fifty percent time uh, at Dickcot and forty percent time at King's Centre. Fo- Let me tell you a little story about the 40% time at King's Centre. Uh, I was asked if I would be the executive director of King's Centre. Pretty cool, eh? Executive director. It's quite a good, uh, good title to have. And Steve Thomas here said, oh, it's you know, it's just it's just, a, just keeping your eye on things and making sure the books balance. Um, <laughs> I bought it, yeah, he was right. Um, and it was at a time of transition when, a few years ago, King Centre was going through a bit of a difficult time uh, as a business, you know, the conference-ledding business. And Andy O'Connell had done a great job the year before, and then he passed that on to me to build on that. And I thought, okay, so executive director, you know, where's my desk? Where's my chair? Where's the people I, you know, tell what to do? And we had a very small crew in those days. So uh, here I am as executive director. I think it was week three, but I might be just a little bit out with that. When someone came and said to me, the toilets are blocked. So I thought, right, um, toilets are blocked. So we send for, ah, we haven't got a caretaker and we haven't got a facilities manager. And worse, we haven't got the money To pay for anyone to come and do it. So the toilet unblocker then will be. uh, All right, so that'd be me then. So I went and found out where the yellow gloves were and, you know, found a hose and a pipe. And an hour later, I had these blessed toilets clear and thought, love serving you, Lord. Until the following week when the toilets blocked again. This time, worse than ever before. And they blocked for varying reasons, which I won't go into, but none of which were pleasant. (laughs) So here I am, and honestly, for the next six months, it was almost like the toilets. One or more of them got blocked every week. And there was me saying, Lord, here I am. I am ready to serve you. And God said, okay, let's see how you cope with blocked toilets. I love the idea of serving. Till I have to serve and do something I don't particularly want to do. In fact, I became such an expert at unblocking toilets and posting on Facebook. So I'm quite a Facebook fanatic that when I went to teach at a Bible school in America that summer, they gave me a gift at the end of the week of a toilet plunger signed by all the students because I'd become so known as um, the toilet guy. Servanthood is highly esteemed by God. We all agree till God gives us An opportunity to serve and again, and again, and again, and again. Servanthood is highly esteemed by God. And the reason that God loves servanthood is very simple. Is that God himself is a servant. Sounds a bit shocking almost to put it like that, doesn't it? But God himself is a servant, the Bible tells us. Not out of weakness, but out of greatness. Out of being so secure in who he is that he can get down and do anything and he feels it takes nothing away from him. It only reflects who he is and what his heart is like. I don't know any other religion that has a God who comes to... Serve. And what I want us to grasp this morning simply, if you go home with nothing else, is I want you to go home this morning with this thought that our God is a God who serves. And of course, nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the life of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at now. I'm going to look at a prophetic passage. So I'm going to look at servanthood in the prophetic from one passage in the Old Testament. And Mark's going to come and then look at servanthood in practice and look at one story from the life of Jesus. And then I'll come and round it up quickly at the end. So let's take a look at servanthood in prophecy. Now the Old Testament contains many, many passages of the coming Messiah. A king who would come and establish God's kingdom on earth. A king who, by most Jewish thinking, would come as a conquering king with a sword, get a great white horse, raise up an army, whop God's enemies, clear them out, and set up the kingdom of God with Jerusalem as its center. But some of the prophets said, yes, the coming king is coming, but he's going to come in a completely different way to what we've expected. He's going to come and conquer, not through a sword, but through servanthood, even to the point of laying down his life. And one of the prophets who perhaps saw that more clearly than any was Isaiah, and we're going to read now from Isaiah chapter 42. So if you've got your Bibles, which I hope you have... Verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice and he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord God says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand and I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So that passage is the first of four so-called servant songs of Isaiah. And these are songs or prophetic in which Isaiah sees with increasing clarity not just the fact of the Messiah's coming, but the manner of his coming how he would come. And what he starts to see, and what was staggering was that he starts to see that the messianic king when he comes will come as a servant. And I want us to look at that passage we've seen at six brief things that Isaiah sees about this coming king's servanthood and all of them can apply to us first of all he sees the relationship it's based on verse one here is my servant whom i uphold my chosen one in whom i delight that that phrase here is it really says in the original look behold to use the old word I, i i want you to look at him, what God wants us to see first and foremost is the servant and God's relationship with him. Because that's where everything starts with relationship. And he unpacks it a bit more. He says, look, my servant whom I uphold, and the word means whom I've got a firm grip on. This is why Jesus could do what he did because he knew that his life was in God's hands. God had a firm grip on him. My chosen one in whom I delight. My chosen one, God's man for the job. In whom I delight, God's man for himself. So here's the relational nature of God. Everything about God is relational. His Messiah is is relational. So everything about God's kingdom is relational. And therefore everything in God's kingdom is relational, including serving. Serving comes out of being secure in our relationship with God. It comes out of being secure that we're a child, we're a son, we're a daughter of the living God... And actually, whether we're the boss who sits in the office or the guy who takes the toilet plunger and cleans out the loo, we're secure in God. And nothing that we do or don't do takes away from that. Knowing that God has chosen us, delights in us, upholds us, he's given us a task to do. And you know what? That's what lifts servanthood from drudgery to a, a delight. And when Jesus came, that's what he'd model again and again and again. A relationship with the Father that released him to do anything. Second, Isaiah sees the resources that it draws upon. Second part of verse 1, and I will put my spirit On him. Isaiah sees here that servanthood, God's way, can only be done by God's Spirit, and that without God's Spirit, all we end up with is effort, striving, hard work, duty, law, and guess where that leads? Resentment. These blessed toilets. I got there a few times in my journey. To seeing servanthood as a delight. If we don't serve in God's spirit, it just becomes hard work. There was a word this morning Keith brought to us about learning how to be still in the busyness. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke ten, where Jesus came for supper that day, and you know, getting supper right was so important, and. And Mary sat at Jesus' feet and sat listening to his teaching while Martha served. Except her serving was huffing and puffing. It's pretty clear when you read the story. You know, banging the pots and pans in the kitchen, no doubt, to let Mary know, don't you think it's time you stopped listening and came and helped? And eventually she gets so frustrated, she comes out to Jesus. Do you remember the story? And says... Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Expecting Jesus to say what? Yeah, Mary, it's probably time to go and help a bit now. And instead, this blessed Jesus says, (laughs) sorry, she's chosen the best part. One thing only is needed. She's chosen it and I'm not going to take it away from her. When we don't serve in the Holy Spirit, when we just serve in our own strength and energy, Isaiah is seeing here, we just end up frustrated, bitter, annoyed with everyone, even with God. But when Jesus came, he'd show us again and again how to draw on the Holy Spirit and so to be free to serve in anything. Third, he sees the goal he pursues. Verse 1, and he will bring justice to the nations. God's servant carries a passion for justice, for things being as God says they ought to be. He just can't live within justice. So he has to change things so that they become just. And who for? Well, here was the shocking thing. Not just for Judah, not just for God's people. But for the nations, that is, for those who aren't yet part of God's people. Not just for me and my kind, but for those still on the outside of what God is doing. And when Jesus came, that's exactly the spirit that he would operate in, isn't it? Mixing with people like Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, all the folk that the religious people said, what on earth are you doing mixing with people like that? Don't you know who they are? And Jesus is saying, oh yeah, I know who they are. That's why I'm here and mixing with them because it's not the health you need, the doctor is the sick. Real servant had, has a goal to fix things that are wrong. Not so that you feel good, but because... That's what God says is right. Number four, the style it adopts. I love this one, verse two. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, this this style of leadership, first of all, it's not showy in its words. That word there, shout, in the original means shriek, cry out loud. Do something that says, notice me. I'm doing this, you know. Notice me how important I am. Notice me how many Twitter followers I've got. Look at what I'm doing and Isaiah says, no, that's not kingdom servanthood causing a fuss, wanting everybody to see what you're doing. It's not showy in its words and it's not rough in its manner. Because when you think about it, what would most people do with a bruised reed? A bruised reed means a damaged reed. What's it good for? Absolutely nothing. What's the best thing you can do with a bruised reed? Throw it away. What's the point of, you know, in a few weeks' time when these candles have got right to the bottom here and and, and the wick's smoking and and there's nothing there left? What's the good of that? Answer? Absolutely nothing. What should you do with it? Throw it out. And here's this great picture of Isaiah seeing that when the servant comes, do you know what? He'll take bruised reeds Things and people that others say as oh, rubbish, throw it out, and say, "Oh, I can mend that." And you will take smouldering wicks, lives that feel they're at the end of themselves, and people which say, "Yeah, they're not worth bothering with," and say, oh, "I can fix you. I can renew you. I, I, I can break open the dam and let the water." Start flowing again. That was what lay behind the servant's manner, style of teaching. Nothing too damaged, nothing too broken, nothing too far gone for him. And in a quiet, gentle, unostentatious way, Jesus gives himself to fixing them, to renewing and rebuilding and restoring him when Jesus came. That's exactly what he'd do. And how he'd operate. Number five. There's six. In case you're counting. The resolve it has. Verse, second part of verse three. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And he will not falter or be discouraged. Till he establishes justice on earth. Now, there's a play on words here in the original Hebrew text that we can't see in our English Bibles. Because the word falter, he will not falter, is the same word as in the previous verse for smoldering. And the word for discouraged is the same word as in the previous verse for bruised. Isaiah was a brilliant poet, by the way. We miss a lot of it in our English translations. Here's the first glimpse in Isaiah that the suffering servant wouldn't be immune to all the knocks and pressures and bumps and bruises of life. That there would be things that would seek to try to bruise him. Things that would try to burn him out just like they do us. But Isaiah sees that in God, the servant finds an inner resilience from God to withstand all that stuff. Not to get bruised, not to get hurt, not to get damaged, not to burn low in spirits, and so to retreat into self-protection and self-pity. Anybody here ever in their life retreated into self-protection and self-pity when things have gone wrong? Yeah, but this servant says, I am walking that way. Because servanthood is about giving myself and giving myself because I know the Spirit of God is with me. And even if people don't receive me or they bruise me or they try to snuff out my will, I'll keep giving myself. Because the servant has the resolve to see things through to the end and to be faithful. And when Jesus came, that's the spirit he would move in again and again. And then one last thing in my part. And the thing that makes all of the others possible. The reason the servant could do all those other things is because of the grace the kingdom servanthood finds. The servant understands he's not on his own in this. The amazing grace of God is with him. The God who says, and we're just going to read these verses, verse 5, 6. The God who says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. I'll make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison to release the dun- from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. And one give it to another or pray, my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. And this getting hold of the grace of God who's there with us and holding our hand day by day is what Jesus would model again and again in his life. Getting hold of the grace of God in every situation, knowing that he was secure and kept safe. Our God is a God who serves And Isaiah saw it prophetically that when his servant, the Son of God, Jesus, came, he would live not as a conquering king with a sword, but as a servant to bring about God's kingdom. There's servanthood in prophecy. Let's listen to Mark as we take a look at servanthood in practice.
1: Um, yeah, um, so like Mike said, uh, my name's Mark, uh, I guess, yeah, I always feel like it's worth doing this, um, I'm a third year undergrad at Somerville College studying history and it'd be great to like chat with any of you guys at the end. Um, yeah, so like Mike's given us a really good, uh, sort of grasp there about who the servant king was supposed to be, uh, but now we'd like really like to look at who he actually was, uh, what did he do? Um, why does any of this matter for us? Um, yeah, so I'd just like to start with this this passage from this little verse from 1 John 2, 6, where it says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Um, what does this mean for us? Uh, does it mean we're supposed to be like mimicking the gait of some first century Middle Easterner? Um, I'm not really sure. I, I mean, it's quite obvious, isn't it, that our faith is supposed to be demonstrated in our our actions, um, and that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was the perfect example for us in doing that. So in order to look at this, we're going to be looking at John 13, uh, verses 1 to 17. Um, So if you could start turning there in your Bibles now, that would be super handy. Um, It's an absolute classic. It's the story of the... Of Jesus washing the feet, um, and I think there's some real, um, yeah. Just as we're turning there, I'd just like to like outline where we're going to go with this section. Um, yeah, I think there's really two key things to this passage. Uh, the first is knowing who God is and knowing who we are. Um, yeah, I guess like some of these themes will come out as we start to read. Um, I've got two. Kind of takeaways for you guys um, as we as we go through it, the first is uh, that we 're going to be thinking about moving from gratitude into servitudes, um, and the second is that uh, we 're going to be talking about moving from security into our destiny um, and overall, what I really want to make out is that like um, Yeah, our servanthood shouldn't be like ring-fence time in our lives. And instead, uh, do you like that sort of like coffee rotor, soup run type things? Um, Instead, uh, yeah, we should really be... I've been really challenged myself whilst doing this to think about servanthood as more of a way of life, uh, a rhythm or a discipline to build into our day-to-days. Cool, so we're just going to read through that passage. Um, Right. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go, and go to the Father. Having loved, the wo- having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Now the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew it was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not everyone is clean. Now when he w- finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done to you, done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Cool. Yeah, so as we begin to pick apart that passage, I think there's, um, yeah, a couple of contextual points that are probably worth uh, noting so John's gospel is written to the same group of believers as his later letters. You know the uh, the verse that we started on, written to that same group of believers. It's written quite a lot later than the other gospels. So you would have had um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke floating around. Um, and what John's gospel has a it has a real clear purpose. It's about encouraging the truth of the things that the early Christians believe in, it's encouraging that, God, uh, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man and showing exactly where the Messiah Jesus fits in the whole scope of human history. So as a result, it really like, focuses in on who the character of Jesus was, which makes it really useful for us uh, in trying to work out like, Jesus' example for us to follow. Uh, this story also comes at a really important part in John's Gospel. Um, so, yeah, if you don't know, like I found this out myself. Like John's Gospel is split into like two sections. So the first part up to chapter 13, uh, we're looking at the Son of God demonstrating his glory uh, to the wider world. Um, then in verse 13, we get a shift. And it really narrows in and focuses in on Jesus' last few days, uh, the time that he spent with his disciples, um, and working out where his death and resurrection fits um, in the importance of yeah human history again. Um, so yeah, this this little passage about Jesus washing the feet really sets the scene for that second part. Um, so yeah, it's super important in terms of historically. This would have been like some sort of intimate meal, uh, probably the Passover. Um like as the other gospels sort of suggest. Um it probably wouldn't have quite looked like that famous Da Vinci painting with them all sitting uh yeah, like straight around a the table. They're probably more likely to have been reclining, uh generally like Roman tradition, like leaning out to grab food and search. Um yeah, we see this real tradition of foot washing throughout uh, the Old Testament, uh, where people, when they arrived into a house or to a tent, uh, you washed your feet um, as the first thing that you did. And it was a refreshing and cleanly action to do. Um, so normally you'd find a jug for yourself which had been set out, or in richer households there'd be uh, a slave to wash your feet. Um, And this slave, he would be, like, the lowest of the low. Like, if you can imagine, like, the amount of grots and grime that would build up on your feet when all you wear is sandals all day, every day. Um, It's not a job that anyone wants to be doing. Um, So, yeah, the the slave that would wash your feet is, like, really, really, really low. Um, So something I think is really important um, in this story is that the feet-washing incident happens during supper rather than at the start. Um do you know, like, why hasn't it happened yet is, is the question that we're all asking. Um, and this is where I think we start to, like, build into that knowing who God is. Um, yeah, so I've heard Steve Thomas preach on this in the past. And uh, what he says is that when Jesus gets down on his knees, he washes not only 24 dirty, smelly feet, but also 12 proud hearts. And you can just imagine it, can't you? The disciples sitting around in that upper room, like a little bit awkward, like wondering, oh, we kind of need our feet washing, but who's going to do it? Who's going to make that step and like set themselves aside as as the slave, the lowest of the low? In the other Gospels, we see this sort of clamoring to like sit next to Jesus and, oh, I'm going to be the one who's, who's sitting next to you in heaven. And you can just imagine Jesus as well. I think he's... He's going to be like sitting there, like waiting, watching. I imagine he'd be like hoping, hoping desperately that one of the disciples gets up and does the service. Uh, but knowing that they probably won't because they haven't quite got it yet. Um, but yeah, I think what's really, what really strikes me about this passage is that Jesus then just sees the needs, gets up himself um, and serves and fulfills that need. And do you know, what, like, this is the God that we've been worshipping this morning. I think that's just absolutely, like, amazing and astounding. Obviously, in this passage, uh, it has a real, like, double meaning to it. Um, There's this sort of uh, practical servanthood, what it actually looks like to serve our our brothers and sisters and our neighbors, uh, which Jesus brings out in verses 14 and 15. But there's also this second meaning, uh, which is more symbolic, um, about demonstrating the way in which Jesus will purify us and cleanse us from our sins, uh, which comes across in that uh, dialogue that he has with Peter. I think it's really intriguing that the, the same Greek word that is translated for Jesus laying aside his clothes, it's the same word um, as when Jesus then goes on to lay aside his life. So, this is the God. Um, yeah, he laid aside his life for us. And this is where I think that whole idea of moving from gratitude into servitude comes in. Um, the connection is just like so clearly made in Jesus's head. Um, he's just like, he knows exactly what the father has done for him. And so he moves into this place of service. In verses 3 and 4, it says, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. He had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. It just seems to flow, like, how great the father had been to him. So he got up and wrapped a, a towel around his waist. It's like utterly integrated. He worships and adores his father, and so his only reaction is to look to serve others. Now, as I was uh, preparing this talk earlier this week, uh, I was walking down the canal, um, and I was really struck uh, by some of the little statues of Buddha on some of the canal boats. Um, and yeah, I was really struck by just how utterly unique this model of service is to Christianity. Um, yeah, I can I admit I have like a vague knowledge of the other worldviews at best. Um, but yeah, this isn't just like some sort of way of life which is hoping to lead to some sort of deeper moral understanding. We're also not trying to placate or win points with like a, a holy gods, as maybe a, a Muslim might tell you. Uh, we're also not trying um, to like seek some greater societal benefit, uh, as you might come get from like an atheist point of view on service. Um, in fact I think there's nothing quite as radical or as lasting an encouragement to serve as what we see here and this is where I think this whole point about being secure in who we are to moving into our destiny uh comes in if we know that we are children of the most high God, um yeah then we will just move into our destiny uh that being like lives of service so I guess uh, I just wanted to look at like what maybe this might mean in, in action. Uh, I guess within the church there's a bunch of really practical opportunities we can take to serve. Uh, do you know there's all like kids work, youth stuff, student stuff, uh, worship team stuff, welcome team stuff. Uh, the tech guys at the back are always looking for more people to join them like teas and coffee stuff, whatever your missional community is doing, and as well as like a raft of other opportunities around the King Centre and in our schools. But I think it's really important that we don't just limit it to those times. We're actually looking for more of a lifestyle and attitude of service, which often comes in simple and more hidden ways. Um, Bonhoeffer talks about uh, doing acts of active helpfulness uh, to those around us. Um, whilst, yeah Richard Foster, in his book, "Celebration of Discipline," he talks about things as simple as common courtesy, hospitality, guarding the reputation of others, listening, bearing one another 's burdens and sharing words of life as ways that we can be really like serving in our day-to- days. I think it's just, it's just really important that we don't keep our times of service and our day-to-day lives in separate boxes. Um, I know that I often have a temptation to say, oh, I was serving this morning for an hour at church. So therefore, I don't need to, uh, you know, go and help somebody or whatever. Um, Yeah, and I think it's the same vice versa as well. We should never be so proud to be like, oh, I live live a life of service. So therefore, I'm not going to sign up to to coffee or whatever. Um, Yeah, I guess at this point, there's a bunch of like questions which come up. Um, about is this service supposed to be performed within the church or outside of the church? Is it only for our brothers and sisters in Christ or is it for non-believers as well? Um, Do we have like a focus on our local surroundings or on our global neighbors? And I think they are like really legitimate questions with regards to other passages about servanthood. But to be honest, uh, I really just don't think they are at all relevant here. The servant's king thought process just doesn't have time for those, those those considerations. He just sees a need and he serves it. He just goes and does it. And I think it's like, I mean, we see the example of Judas. He knows that Judas is going to, going to betray him and he serves him anyway. So possibly there's that. But I just really think that he sees that and then runs at it and he serves. I think mean, there is a caveat that sometimes there are additional factors to um, include. So, for example... Uh, I help lead a student homeless outreach in town, Um, and one of the things that we have as one of our official policies is that we don't give money directly to our homeless friends, and we have a bunch of really good uh, reasons for that. Um, So sometimes, yeah, we do need to remember that the gospel calls us to serve uh, at a cost to ourselves uh, and not to those to whom we serve. So sometimes there are those additional factors to hold in place. So, yes, I just wanted to finish this section by going back to those three points that we had at the start. Um, Servanthood comes out of knowing who God is and knowing who we are. It comes from moving from gratitude for what God has done to us, um, done for us even, and moving into servitude. And it comes from moving from destiny, uh, moving from security in who we are as children of God into our destiny as servants. So I think Mike is going to take back over.
0: That's great. I love that, don't you? I think it's great. Moving from gratitude to servitude. It's not just about coming here on a Sunday morning and singing our songs of worship to God. You know, the gratitude has to flow out into servitude. And as Mark said, a servitude that's not like, oh, I'm on three rotors but that it's just a lifestyle, it's just a way of thinking with neighbours, if you're a student, you're in you know, one of the colleges with a well, lady who comes and cleans your room, if you're living out with the fellow students that you share a house with, it's about a mindset, a, a thoughtfulness, a posture, and that's what Jesus modeled to us when he Wait, a, I have to say when Mark shared with me earlier this week what he was going to do and I looked at the notes and he said to me, one of the things that struck me was Jesus left it till halfway through the meal. And do you know what? If I had noticed it before, I'd forgotten I'd noticed it before. It was like while the meal was being served and there he is just waiting. Come on guys, come on, I'm giving you a chance, giving you a chance, giving you a chance. And they won't do it. So the servant king that we saw in Isaiah says, I wouldn't do it because gratitude just easily moves to servitude as a mind set so we've seen servanthood in prophecy in Isaiah 42 we've seen servanthood in practice we've seen the message loud and clear Jesus was a servant he did that out of security of relationship with his father we've seen that our God is a God who serves. I find that an amazing thought. Of course, that doesn't mean He's our sort of personal butler, there just to run when we click our fingers. But there to serve us in enabling us to do all that we need to do and have all that we need to have to fulfill our roles and purpose and our destiny in His kingdom. What a wonderful God. Mark's right, there is no other God in any other religion who comes down to serve. So if this is our amazing God, a God who serves, what sort of people do you think he wants us to be? Really hard question to end with. If God is a God who serves, what sort of people does he want? A people who serve. Why don't we end by reminding ourselves of that. Philippians 2 says, Do you know if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? If you've got any comfort from his love. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit. If you've got any tenderness and compassion. Then I'll oh, make my joy complete. By being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Actually, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, Or the Greek can mean there has something to be clung on to at any cost, because I might lose something if I come down. No, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Notice there, not from God to the nature of God to the nature of man, but from the nature of God to the nature of a servant. That is, in that culture, the lowest form of humanity he went as low as he could go taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and he became obedient to death even death on a cross therefore therefore God exalted him to the highest place And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that therefore. But I wish I could have the therefore without the verses that come before it. But our God is a God who serves and who calls us as his people to be those who by nature by instinct want to serve also him one another our neighbors the folk in oxford who don't know jesus yeah our god is a god who serves And this morning, we're not ending by having a tick list of sign up sheets at the back. Though, to be honest, all of them have vacancies. We're doing none of that. What we're trying to get across to you, Mark and I, this morning is what God is looking for in all of us. is a spirit of servanthood. A spirit that can pick up the toilet plunger. And plunge as often as you have to do it. Funny thing is, once I'd relearned this lesson, the toilets never got blocked again. I think there's only been the odd time now in the last 18 months or so that they have. Who wants a toilet plunger this morning? Let's pray. Just want to end with uh, a few moments' silence. And Mark and I just want to invite you in your own heart to ask again Am I still walking in this spirit of servanthood? If I am, am I doing it joyfully or resentfully? If I have been but have slipped, do I need to tell God this morning I'm rededicating my life to servanthood again? If I've never got round to seeing that walking with Jesus is about serving from start to finish, can I tell him that this morning and say sorry and say I'll start today? And as we do that, all of us be ready for a toilet plunger this week. Here's what I'd like us to do as we close and as we're still in prayer. And I don't want us to do this because we feel we have to, but only if we feel uh, God is stirring our hearts. Maybe there are some of us this morning that have, you know, got a bit resentful about serving. And I I, I had a sense earlier that it might be serving in one area in particular where you start at serving joyfully and you've got resentful because it's gone on and on and on and on. And you thought God would come and rescue you and he hasn't. Or it might be that some of us have served in the past and we've we've got out of it. We've got very self-protective, very self-pitying. Or it might be that we honestly do feel we're serving, but we just want to say again this morning, Lord, I rededicate myself to a servant lifestyle among your people. And if you want to do that just over the next 30 seconds I want you to respond to God not to me but to respond to God by just standing where you are as God touches your heart something you need to pick up again something you need to start an attitude you've lost or got resentful in. And as it were in standing up uh, I'm asking you to take hold of your toilet plunger from God's hand. If you want to do that over these next 30 seconds, just stand where you are and we'll pray. Lord, help us to carry a servant spirit. Where we've lost it, forgive us where we've become resentful renewers. And help us this week, each one of us, whether we are standing or sitting, to take our toilet plungers as our badge of authority, to take our bowl and our towel, and just to walk in the spirit of servanthood, knowing that we are walking in your spirit as we do so. In Jesus' name we pray.